feeling of care uh, or concern for others. We can experience this unity which will lead us to experience complete joy, as Paul mentioned. Since these Christians had all these things in common, Paul's hope was that they could take it to the next level. These common threads are an encouragement for us to follow the example of Jesus. And Paul's desire was to know that his brothers and sisters had this unity which would make his joy complete. Now Paul already had joy when he thought about them, but there was a little room for more. It's like when good things happen and they can bring you joy. But there are other good things that can happen that will bring you even more joy. Now, I'm going to share from my experience, but I know all of you have had your own experiences in this. But Christy and I were overjoyed when we found out we were going to have Alyssa. Uh, we, we got word that she was pregnant. We were excited. Then Alyssa was born, and we were so joyful. And she grew up to be a wonderful young lady, and that gave us joy. And then she and Christian got married, and that gave us joy. And then we learned a couple of years later they were going to have a baby, and that brought us joy. And then that little baby, McKenna, was born, and she was healthy, and now we get to spend time with her, and that brings us joy. Each of these experiences brought joy. And with each new experience, you know what? Our joy increased. For Paul's joy to continue to grow, he asked the Philippians to do two things. What did he encourage them to do? He asked them to be like-minded. In other words, sharing love for each other, being one in spirit and one in mind, being of the same mind means to think the same way. Now, I don't want you to think this means we can't have our own opinions. Um, it's not saying that. He's not saying we can't have different ideas about something. But what he did expect was that when it came to Jesus and the fundamentals of spirituality and Christianity that they would all share the same attitudes. He expected them to be like-minded when it came to spiritual things, their spiritual mindset, their attitude, their commitment to Jesus. They should all have the same kind of love for each other. This is the mindset he wanted them to have. And then he wanted them to be unselfish when dealing with each other. If you think about it, every time we have a problem with someone else in life, and you can probably think of some issue where maybe there's somebody that maybe they didn't like you or you didn't like them or there was something that popped up. But most of the time, it comes from selfishness, either on our part or on their part or more often than not, on both of our parts. Would y'all agree with that? Instead of admitting our faults and our failures and forgiving their faults and failures, 
We have to act like we are the injured ones and we're the ones in the right and we can't be wrong. We have to have our own way. So listen to me, friends. If, if you are having a problem with someone, why not look in the mirror, right? Have you done something to help create the problem? Instead of waiting for them to take the first step, well, they did me wrong and I'm, I'm going to stand here until they... You know, that's not the Christian attitude. We need to do the Christian thing. We need to be the mature people in the room. You go to them and make it right. That is certainly the way of Christ. It may not be the way of man. You know, the way of man is we have to be right. We have to have our way. We don't want to admit our failures. We don't want to admit our faults. But the way of Christ calls us to go against our natural instincts. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 5. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. I don't know if I've ever seen that happen in all my years ago in the church. That you know, back in the old days, the offering plate would come by. I've never seen somebody say, wait a minute. I know there's a problem between me and brother so-and-so. I can't give until I go make that right. I've never seen that happen. But if you want to live that way, go ahead. But don't call yourself a Christian if you're going to hold on to grudges and attitudes like that because you're not following the lead of your Savior Christ. Paul pointed to the way of Jesus, and he said that it led and called us to follow his example. Think about it. If we follow Jesus' example, our relationships with others will bring us joy. So what was the attitude of Jesus? And to find the attitude of Jesus, we're going to go through the rest of our text today. First of all, we learn that Jesus thinks of others, not himself. The person who follows Jesus' lead will put others ahead of themselves. Now, this, of course, is the opposite of selfishness, isn't it? So let's read verses 5 through 6. Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So let's think about the nature of Jesus for a moment. We know that Jesus is fully God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are one. But even though that is true, Jesus did not think of himself as being so important, well, I am God, that he could not take on the role that he was meant to fulfill. Gareth Reese, in his commentary on Philippians, writes, Jesus did not regard living in a manner of equality with God, a thing he tenaciously had to hang on to or cling to at all costs, but he emptied himself. Think about that. 
the Lord willingly descended from celestial glory to earthly servanthood. In other words, he didn't see himself as being so important that he could not humble himself. He was totally thinking of others above himself. Paul would also write in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. If we are to follow his lead, we will think of others ahead of ourselves. In fact, Scripture is clear that this is a mark of being a Christian. Paul would also write in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. J. Kessler, in an article for Marriage Partnership, wrote, Jesus-style love is the opposite of the world's power base, accomplishment equals importance viewpoint. Christian love means putting the other person first, seeking the other person's well-being regardless of what it costs. So if we follow Jesus' lead, we will put others ahead of ourselves. That includes every spouse that is hearing this today. You put the other person's need ahead of your own. It includes people we may not always agree with. The person at work that gets on your nerves. They're on that list of others too. Yes, we even put them ahead of ourselves. Isn't that what Jesus did for you and me? He also serves others before himself. Serving means to submit to the will and need or needs of another. This is what Jesus did, not just with us, but also with Father God. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, we read, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So, first of all, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. In other words, he temporarily became subordinate to the Father. Remember, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit are one. They are equal. And yet, by coming to earth in the form of a man, Jesus submitted to the Father's will. There's something interesting about the word translated nature in our translation. In other translations, it's translated form. But the original meaning of the word speaks of the inner essence, not just the outward appearance. So in other words, Jesus didn't just do this for show so that he would look good. He wasn't just play-acting. He truly desired within himself to submit himself to the Father's will. 
He took on the nature of a servant. Yes, he was still God. But in addition to this, he added the form of a bond servant to his nature. He became a human being. Yes, he was a real man. But he was more than a man. He was still God too. He was fully God and he was fully man. That's hard to get our minds wrapped around, isn't it? But if we are to follow Jesus' lead, we also must become a servant, not just in our actions, but in our hearts. In fact, if we have the pure motivation of putting others ahead of ourselves and serving them, that action will come from the heart. Some may serve for other motives. They may want the recognition for their service. They may want people to applaud them. They may want to feel important. They, they may want to feel good about themselves. And even that motivation is sort of more focused on self than it is others, isn't it? But when our hearts are pure, our service stems from a desire to submit to God first and then help others. There is no self in the service. Someone posted a question on Facebook, what is hard about serving others? Here are some of the responses. I think many of us can uh, empathize with these. Serving is hard when it doesn't fit into my schedule or plan. Like when I want to go for a walk or take a long bath, but my aging parent needs me to sort their meds, run an errand, or simply be with them. That was one response. Another said, it's hard when their need seems endless. I don't want to risk helping or serving because I may get sucked in. Being swallowed up in the serving and not getting to be me, I think, I, the me I think I am or should be. And then there was this. There's such limited energy left after a demanding workday meeting our basic responsibilities, whether with young kids or in the corporate world. How do you balance the need for rest and self-care with serving others? And then there was this last one, which may be the one we can all agree with. What makes it hard to serve others? Others. <laughs> I think this is all true, but it was also true for Jesus too, wasn't it? He knew that we didn't deserve him, and yet he served. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, some marriages were motivated by mere lust, but mere lust is felt even by fleas and lice. Love begins when we wish to serve others. Friend, if you claim to follow Jesus, you must become a servant. It has to come from the heart, and there is a way to serve today by helping us pick up those chairs at the end of our service, right? <laughs> by going out there back and getting those picnic tables, yeah! But together, it'll only take about five minutes. How was that for segueing? If we also think about the fact that Jesus sacrifices himself for others, 
The fact that Jesus put others ahead of himself and became a servant leads to this fact that he sacrificed for us. And Paul made it clear in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I really want us to get this in our minds. The Son of God humbled himself to the point of being put to death. Now, it took humility for Jesus to submit to the point of becoming a man, leaving celestial glory of heaven and coming down to earth, where admittedly, we would rather be in heaven than here. Am I right? Now, we're not pushing it. We're not saying, Lord, take me today. But we're saying, look, Lord, if you take me, I know where I'm going to be, and I'm okay with that. But Jesus did the opposite. He left heaven and came here. He submitted to the Father's will. Then he took it further by stooping down to help others. In other words, he served and was not served. Just think about that. It was his word that brought about creation. So everything that he saw while he was here on earth, he made it happen. And then he further stooped down to help those, even if they treated him like trash. Then he submitted by allowing his own creation to treat him like a criminal, like someone that doesn't matter. They spit upon him. They beat him. They whipped him. They tried to publicly shame him. And then they crucified him. Jesus, as God, could never die. Jesus, as God, is eternal. He is infinite. But Jesus, the man, died a horrible, horrible death. He suffered in ways that he would never have suffered if he had stayed where he was. And he suffered in ways that most men will never suffer on a cross. Crucifixion was one of the most horrible forms of death devised by man. It included torture. It was humiliating because one was stripped down to nearly nothing, people mocking and slandering. It, it was the most shameful death the Romans could come up with, and it was reserved for slaves and the worst of criminals. And yet Jesus submitted to it. No one will ever sacrifice for you what Jesus has sacrificed for you. But in his sacrifice, he revealed how we should live because he did not live in fear. He knew that even though he would die on that cross, that he would live. When we live and sacrifice as Jesus did, we can be assured that God is going to be with us that He will bless us, that He will reward us. And sacrifice can take many different forms, but it always involves giving up what we might want for our own sake 
for the sake of someone else. This is also true in marriage, isn't it? Remember Paul's words to the Ephesians about husbands? Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And what did He do? He gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What does that mean? It means we give ourselves up for her. Are you listening, husbands? Are you really listening? We, we as parents sacrifice for our children. We sacrifice for people in our community. Some came out and gave blood yesterday. We might say, man, they gave their blood to help somebody. But again, there are many ways to sacrifice. But sacrifice is the way of the Lord. And if you want to follow His example, there is no way around it. It will take you through sacrifice. But why? Why do we need to do all this? Why do we need to submit? Why do we need to serve? Why do we need to sacrifice? Well, because it all leads to this. Jesus glorifies God above all else. You know, one mark of a Christian is that we will put God before everything. We don't seek the glory. We give the glory to God. So we read these last few verses of our text. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want you to understand that one way or another, one day, no matter whether somebody says they believe in God today or they don't, one day everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is God the Son. Everyone. Those that are denying it today, they will bend the knee to Him. They will probably beg for mercy. And friends, I hope you're here today because you believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And I hope that you put your full faith and trust in Him. Let's do that now while we have a chance to make it work and not later when it's too late. Amen? But all of this is for this reason, that God be glorified. I read a story about something that happened in the NASCAR circuit. How many of y'all are NASCAR fans? You like to watch the races, okay? In the story it says it was a small adjustment that could make a big difference. Sure, it was against NASCAR rules, but almost everyone else was doing it. So crew chief Tim Shutt 
crawled under the number 20 car of Mike McLaughlin, who races on the NASCAR Bush circuit. Joe Gibbs' team owner is adamant that we don't cheat, says Shute. Shute is a relatively new believer who encountered Christ at a Christian retreat for participants in the racing industry. And he went on to say this, most teams figure that as long as you get away with it, it's not cheating. He goes on to say this, I said to Mike that morning in the practice, if we're no good in practice, I'll put this piece, the illegal piece, on. Probably 30 other teams are doing it. I was justifying it. I got under the car. I got halfway through putting it on. And that verse, seek ye first the kingdom of God, came flashing in red in front of me. And whoo, that was it. I said, I'm leaving this up to you, God. And he didn't put the piece on the car. And McLaughlin won the race. <laughs> it was Talladega, one of the biggest races of 2001. He says, when we won, the first thing that came to my mind was that verse. God wanted to show himself to me. Now I ask you, friends, why would someone cheat? Well, we could say in order to win. But why would winning be so important that we want to cheat? Well, in order that we get the glory. Isn't that right? Am I missing something there? How can we honor God when we are more interested in winning than we are in obeying? Are y'all hearing me? How can we give God the glory when we want the glory for ourselves. God is honored when we obey Him. And if you're not obeying God, you are not glorifying God. Friend, whatever you are telling yourself about your decisions, you know whether you are in obedience to God or not. You know it. Are you willing to cheat in order to win? Are you willing to lie in order to get ahead? Are you willing to break your vow because you're not happy? Are you willing to fit in with the world in order to be liked by the world? You have to choose. I saw this thing about, I don't know how many of you have Netflix, but there's a show on Netflix called The Crown. And it's sort of following the life of Queen Elizabeth II and there's an episode where she is traveling to Salon on a diplomatic tour, and she appoints her sister, Princess Margaret, to be her representative for some minor royal engagements. Well, Princess Margaret, who had long been unhappy with her sister's lack of flair as a queen, takes the opportunity to bring color and personality to the monarchy. She speaks her own mind. She jokes with the press and she belittles other dignitaries. And in this scene in that show, Prime Minister Winston Churchill has come to rebuke the princess and relieve her of her duties as a representative. He explains to her that she was not appointed to represent herself. And so here's this condensed conversation from the scene. 
Winston Churchill says, uh, Your Royal Highness, when you appear in public performing official duties, you are not you. And she says, well, of course I'm me. And Churchill says, the crown. That's what they've come to see, not you. And friends, in the same way as a Christ follower, I do not go out into the world to express my personal views and opinions and agendas. I am Christ's ambassador. That's who the world has come to see, not me. I want to follow my leader, Jesus. I want to live as he lived. I want to think as he thought. I want to serve as he served. I want to sacrifice as he sacrificed. I want to glorify God as Jesus glorified God. Less of me and my faults, weaknesses, and failures, and more of Jesus. Less of me focusing on me and more of Jesus focusing on others. That's how we follow our leader. Father God, we are so humbled by the life of Jesus. He humbled himself. He gave up heaven for a time. He came to earth. He lived as a man. He was treated horribly and would even submit to death on a cross. And so, Father, we come to you today and we have nothing to boast about. There is nothing that we can be arrogant about. And I pray, Father, that we would just follow Jesus' lead. Help us in every relationship to treat people as Jesus treated people. Especially in our homes, with our spouses, with our children. Help us to be pure in our motives of service. Open doors for us to bring you glory. And I ask that you would forgive us when we, glory, we, we are glory seekers and teach us to be glory givers. Father, I, I feel compelled to say this in my prayer that this week the Supreme Court of our land revoked an abomination on our land. For too long, Father, we have treated innocent babies as nothing more than unwanted trash. Untold millions have been put to death, and their blood is our shame. And Father, I ask you to forgive us. I ask you to help those women who find themselves in unwanted pregnancies to make the right decision, a decision for life. I pray, Father, that you would provide the care they need and may we be there to help them along the way. Bless those sinners around our country who have stood for life even under harsh cultural pressure. And may we all courageously stand for life and not be bullied into submission by the culture that rejects you. You are the creator of life. And Father, as we follow Jesus, we support life. I pray for our nation that you will bring peace and forgive us for this shame. I pray for healing and forgiveness for women who have made the decision to abort their children 
Help them to come to you and seek you. May we live our lives in such a way that people will see less of us and more of Jesus to the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.